Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, President Biden and Kevin McCarthy agree on an $886 billion military budget. So the debt ceiling agreement that was reached between the White House and House Republicans, it was announced on Sunday and it caps military spending at $886 billion for 2024, matching President Biden's requested budget. Republicans negotiating the debt ceiling deal only sought non-military spending cuts, which isn't a surprise. There was some talk, you know, in the beginning of the new Congress that the Republicans might be looking to cut military spending. Uh, but, you know, that was just talk by a few members of Congress. And it was didn't seem like it was something that, you know, most Republicans wanted to do, which, again, is not a surprise. And this $886 billion cap for military spending represents about a 3.3% increase from 2023. So the White House and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, they still need to get this this debt ceiling agreement passed through Congress, and many hawkish Republicans are going to likely oppose the deal because they've previously blasted Biden's $886 billion request, which is massive, uh, but they've called it inadequate. And leading the charge, of course, is Senator Lindsey Graham. He slammed the debt limit deal in an appearance on Fox News on Sunday. He said, quote, the Biden defense budget was a joke before. And if we adopt it as Republicans, we will be doing a big disservice to the party of Ronald Reagan. The biggest winner of the Biden defense budget is China because they'll have a bigger Navy, end quote. So over the past two years, hawks in Congress have really gotten their way. Uh, They've approved significantly more military spending than what Biden requested for both 2022 and 2023. So when Biden requested a military budget for 2022, they added uh, tens of billions to that that number. And in 2023, same thing. He asked for $813 billion, and Congress added, added $45 billion to that. So that's a huge uh, increase. Um, So again, we're not sure exactly what's going to happen with this debt ceiling debate. Uh, Well, with the agreement, I should say the debate seems to be over and it's whether or not Congress is going to approve the agreement that they reached here. You know, because if they did take Biden's $886 billion request and if they added, you know, tens of billions to it, we would be getting close to a $1 trillion NDAA. That's the National Defense Authorization Act, that's the military spending bill that they pass every year. And, you know, that is not the true total of, you know, military spending or spending on the national security state. As I went over recently, there was a good write-up about this at Responsible Statecraft uh, using the work of a analyst named Winslow Wheeler. And he, you know, has all these charts and he really does the math to figure out what is the real number of U.S. spending on the national security state. And factoring in other types of expenditures, including interest on on debt 
and you know other budgets like the the VA. I mean, the VA has a huge bu budget, over three hundred billion dollars, and also the Department of Homeland Security. That's over a billion, and that brings the total defense budget. You know, using similar numbers than what Biden has requested for twenty twenty four to around one point five trillion dollars. So that's the real cost. Um, and I think it is important to point that out. But still, when it comes to this NDAA, this is what we're looking at right now, $886 billion. And so we'll see, you know, how this how this works. But again, it's not a surprise. It's the one thing that they'll agree on is that they have to spend all this money uh, to maintain this global empire. All right. So the next one here, Democrats demand a more aggressive Ukraine policy. And this article is from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. And now that President Biden has signed off on the delivery of F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine, Democrats in Congress are asking for more. Several members of the Democrat Party in Congress are urging the White House to provide Kiev with significantly more military support. One representative wants the Biden administration to place non-combatant observers on the ground in Ukraine. So this is an idea that I've seen uh, some think tankers uh, discuss and this idea of putting what they're calling non-combatant observers, but U.S. personnel, which I assume would be military personnel on the ground to go watch the battles in Ukraine. Uh, that just you know sounds a lot like military advisors, like what got us started in Vietnam. We know that there are U.S. troops, you know, some special operations forces, and there's also weapons inspectors, uh, you know, just a few dozen. But this would definitely certainly, you know, add to the U.S. involvement in the war. And this is something that Representative Jason Crow has called for. Uh, he's a Democrat from Colorado. Uh, so he said that they could learn through direct observation and communication with Ukraine's forces. He did not specify, you know, what type of personnel would be sent, whether they would be Defense Department or CIA or what exactly. Um, but of course, it would just add to the risk of, you know, the U.S. getting more involved in this war. And Senator Jack Reed, Democrat from Rhode Island, he's the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, he's backing a plan that would send the Attackum missiles to Ukraine, and those rockets have a range of nearly 200 miles. And other Democrats support that as well, including Richard Blumenthal, Sheldon Whitehouse. So the Biden administration so far has rejected requests to send those Attackum missiles to Ukraine. Um, so Rep. Adam Smith, a Democrat from Washington, he's the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee. He's calling for the White House to authorize sending cluster bombs to Ukraine, to Ukraine, which are very controversial. Um, as I went over yesterday, Lindsey Graham was calling for it, and several, a lot of Republicans have been calling for the cluster munitions to be sent over there because the U.S. apparently has a lot, and they want you know Ukraine to use them against Russia. And of course, that would uh, put a lot of civilians in in harm's way because they drop all those little bomblets that uh, wind up hurting people you know, way after the fact that civilians can come across them. And that's why the cluster bombs are banned by over 100 countries. Uh, Russia has used them in Ukraine, but Ukraine has also used them in the war. And Ukraine was using them in the Donbass back in, you know, all the way back to 2014 in, in civilian uh, populated areas. So um, 
they're being they've been used in the conflict on both sides. Um, and Kyle mentions as well, you know, Jerry Nadler, the Democrat from New York, who said that he would not care if, you know, Ukraine used F-16s to target Russian territory. So this is the attitude with these Democrats. I mean, they just want more and more and more. And I haven't seen any sign of dissent from anybody, any Democrats in Congress. And if anybody's seen anything, please point me to something. Talking about negotiations, thinking about maybe we shouldn't try to push this thing uh, where we risk nuclear escalation. I mean, I've just seen nothing besides there was that letter from the progressives last year that about how the Biden administration should start thinking about diplomacy, but that was retracted. That just shows to show goes to show the sorry state of affairs when it comes to, you know, Democrats, foreign policy and Congress. It's just really abysmal. Uh, all right, the next one here. Russia puts Lindsey Graham on a wanted list for his dead Russians comment. So Russia has issued an arrest warrant for Lindsey Graham over his comments about Russians dying in Ukraine and calling U.S. spending on the proxy war with Russia the best money we've ever spent. So Russia's interior ministry said that he is wanted now under an article of the Russian criminal code. Graham made the comments while he was meeting with Zelensky in Kiev and Zelensky's office released a video that showed Graham saying Russians are dying. And then it cut to him saying it's the best money we've ever spent. But after the comments caused outrage in Russia, Ukraine did release the full video and it showed that they did, you know, splice those two things together, probably for a provocative effect. Um, So the full video, it shows, him, Graham say Russians are dying. And then him and Zelensky are talking about, you know, Zelensky's basically thanking the U.S. And Graham with, I mean, the, this big smile on his face, it says, oh, it's the best money. Don't worry. All that money funding this war is the best money we've ever spent, which is just a crazy thing to say either way. And, you know, also just the way he pointed out Russians are dying. He, he's very happy about it. Um, so Russia has said that you know, the idea that his comments were taken out of context were uh, just excuses. They said, you know, he already, it doesn't matter even if he said those things separately, basically is what Russia's saying now. And responding to the arrest warrant, Graham said that he was happy that he angered Russia. He said he's going to wear the warrant uh, with a badge of honor, as a badge of honor. All right, the next one here. Uh, oh, I just left up the one yesterday about Lira, the American citizen who's locked up by the SBU for his political views on the war. He was arrested in Kharkiv just because, again, that hasn't gotten much attention, so I want to leave it up on the page for a couple days. Uh, the next one here, China declines meeting with the U.S. Defense Secretary. So the U.S. said on Monday that China declined an offer for a meeting between Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu, who is under U.S. sanctions. So the U.S. proposed for the two military leaders to meet on the sidelines of the Shangri-La dialogue that will be held in Singapore this week. But Beijing has called for the U.S. to lift the sanctions on Li in order for him to meet with Austin. So Lee was sanctioned by the U.S. in 2018 when he was the head of China's Equipment Development Department and oversaw the purchase of Russian military equipment. These sanctions were imposed using the 2017 Countering America, America's Adversaries 
through Sanctions Act. And they use this law to sanction Turkey for purchasing Russian S-400 missiles, which obviously angered Turkey. And I mean, just the fact that the U.S. sanctions China, Chinese officials for buying Russian military equipment. I mean, what is it? You know, how do they think they have the right to to, to punish China for doing that? Um, it just seems like hubris. Uh, but and now it's uh, getting in the way of dialogue between the U.S. and China. So Lee was appointed the defense minister in March. And according to Bloomberg, China's position is that he will not be on an equal footing with Lloyd Austin if they meet while the sanctions were still in place. And the U.S. claims that it's looking to foster communication with China, but has so far refused to lift these sanctions. Seems like an easy thing that they could do if they were serious about all, you know, all these calls for dialogue with China. President Biden was asked about the issue during the recent G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan, and he said that the sanctions were under negotiation, but there's no sign that the U.S. intends to lift them. So despite this, again, what I think seems to be an easy fix, uh, the Pentagon slammed China for declining the meeting, accusing Beijing of having a concerning unwillingness to engage in military discussions. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder said that the sanctions do not prevent uh, Austin from meeting with the Chinese defense secretary. Um, so I think, you know, this goes to show that the U.S. isn't really willing to take any steps to sort of de-escalate things with China. I mean, maybe they would need the approval of Congress to lift this sanction on this Chinese defense minister, or they would need to run it by Congress. Um, and, you know, the way Congress is now, it's just completely hysterical about the China stuff. So maybe they think they can't get it done. But I don't know. You think they would be, you know, trying to take this a little more seriously than just kind of reject the idea of lifting these sanctions. Um, all right. So the next one here, U.S., Japan, and the Philippines to hold their first joint Coast Guard drills. So the U.S., Japan, and the Philippines will hold their first ever trilateral Coast Guard exercises in the South China Sea starting this week amid rising tensions with China in the region. So the exercises will take place off the coast of the Philippines' Bataan province and will be held from June 1st to the 7th. About 400 military personnel will take part in the drills, and Australia will participate as an observer country. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Philippine Coast Guard said that the purpose of the drills is to strengthen interoperability through communication exercises, maneuvering drills, photo exercises, maritime law enforcement training, search and rescue, and passing exercises. So the drills come as the U.S. and the Philippines have been taking steps to boost their military alliance, including Washington formalizing its commitment to intervene if Philippine vessels come under attack in the South China Sea. So the Philippines, China, Taiwan, and several other Southeast Asian nations have overlapping claims to the South China Sea. Chinese and Philippine vessels occasionally have encounters near disputed reefs, and the U.S. always reminds China when those Incidents happen that the 1951 U.S.-Philippine Mutual Defense Treaty applies to attacks on Philippine boats. So the U.S. is willing to go to war if this dispute turns hot. And the U.S. formalized that commitment when Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. visited Washington in early May. 
the two nations issued new guidelines to update the mutual defense treaty that explicitly state an armed attack on vessels of either country in the South China Sea would invoke mutual defense commitments. The two nations also recently inked an agreement that will give the U.S. military access to four new bases in the Philippines. Three of them are in the north, could be used as a staging ground for a fight with China over Taiwan. And the other base is in Palawan, which is a Philippine island province on the South China Sea. So more cooperation between the U.S. and the Philippines and also Japan. And this is all part of that strategy, uh, the U.S. strategy to build alliances against China in the region. All right. The next one here, Israeli airstrikes hit the Syrian capital of Damascus. So Israel launched airstrikes in Syria on Sunday night, hitting targets near the capital, Damascus, that caused material damage. A military source told uh, Syrian media that the airstrikes were launched from the direction of the Golan Heights and that Syria's air defenses intercepted some of the missiles. No casualties were reported in the strikes, just material damage. So according to the cradle, the incident marked the 17th time that Israel has bombed Syria this year and the 12th time since a devastating earthquake hit Turkey and Syria in February, killing thousands of Syrians. Several of those airstrikes targeted the airport in Aleppo, a city that was severely impacted by the earthquake. The Israeli attacks put the airport temporarily out of service three times, cutting off a channel for earthquake aid. And last week, Israel's defense minister said that the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu doubled Israeli airstrikes in Syria since taking power at the end of December. The escalation, uh, you know, this Israeli escalation in Syria, Israeli escalations in Gaza have happened as well. In the West Bank, of course, they've stepped up raids there. You know, this comes as Netanyahu is facing uh, this big political crisis over his planned judicial overhaul. You know, they're negotiating some sort of compromise now, it seems like, but there's still been a lot of unrest and protests have, you know, continue. Uh, so, you know, what better way to distract from that than escalate uh, airstrikes? All right, the last news story here, NATO troops injured in Kosovo trying to disperse a crowd. So tensions uh, continue to rise in Kosovo and NATO troops stationed there under the alliance's Kosovo force mission uh, known as K-4. They were wounded on Monday while trying to disperse a group of ethnic Serb protesters in the town of Svesin. So I probably am pronouncing that town name wrong, but uh, it's one of the towns in northern Kosovo that is majority ethnic Serb. Uh, Kosovo is majority ethnic Albanian, but Serbs live in the north. And they've, you know, since Kosovo formally declared independence from Serbia in 2008, those Serbs uh, have rejected that. They do not recognize the government in Pristina. They recognize the government in Belgrade. They want to be part of Serbia. Um, so tensions escalated in this town on Friday after Kosovo police used tear gas to disband a group of Serbs who were trying to block an ethnic Albanian mayor from entering his office building. And the reason why they were doing that is because they had elections, local elections, that were boycotted by the ethnic Serb majority because um, they, again, uh, they don't feel like they should be represented by this Kosovo government. So they didn't vote in these elections, but then you have these mayors trying to, uh, you know, be their mayors and they don't want them to be. 
So they're protesting it in four of these northern municipalities. Uh, and in this one, Fesson, the tensions have really escalated. Um, so that was on Friday. And after that incident, the U.S. blamed Kosovo for the tensions, which I think is pretty significant. Um, you know, I'm not too familiar with Kosovo and Serbia tensions and all that. But I have never seen the U.S. really uh, condemn Kosovo like this. Blinken released a statement that was pretty scathing, saying that the U.S. strongly condemns uh, the Kosovo police that tear gassed these Serbs who were protesting, uh, you know, around this municipal building, the the mayor's office. Um, and he said basically that it was, you know, Kosovo's fault for escalating these tensions. And now on Monday, NATO troops moved to disperse Serb protesters after issuing a warning, they said in an audio warning, quote, you are causing unrest. You are putting yourself and your community at risk. Leave the area and go home. Otherwise, K4 will be forced to intervene, end quote. So now, and this is according to a report from Radio Free Europe, Free Liberty, which is uh, a U.S. state-funded media outlet. And so um, generally, you know, U.S. state-funded media is much more pro, you know, Kosovo, pro NATO, but their coverage of it, you know, acknowledged that the K4 troops, you know, tried to disperse this crowd using tear gas and what they call shock bombs, which I guess are like stun grenades. Uh, videos of the incident also showed protesters throwing items at the K4 police after they moved to disperse them. It looks like they got a hold of some sort of stun grenades too. Um, and despite the fact that these K4, these NATO troops, uh, you know, were going to clear out the crowd, K4 claimed that their troops were victims of an unprovoked attack. Uh, and they said 25 of them were injured. So they took a beating from these Serb protesters. Um, so, you know, tensions could certainly escalate here. Vucic, the Serbian president, he's mobilized, you know, pr his troops are on standby. Uh, maybe there's a chance, uh, you know, things could get pretty hairy here. Um, and when it comes to the NATO presence in Kosovo, there's currently about 3,700 NATO troops deployed in Kosovo under K4, including over 600 U.S. troops. And that's a presence that's, you know, there's been a NATO presence in Kosovo since the 1999 NATO bombing campaign that broke up Yugoslavia and carved out uh, Kosovo from Serbia. Um, so, you know, all the things about the U.S. saying that Russia, you know, you can't change borders, you know, in the post-Cold War era. I mean, they they did it right there in Kosovo. Um, so, yeah, uh, we'll see how this situation develops. But it's interesting, you know, the thing that the U.S. condemns the Kosovo police for, the, the NATO troops go and try to do, you know, tear gassing them for protesting. Uh, that's it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ted Galen Carpenter, Libertarian Apologists for Ukraine's Authoritarianism. Uh, go check that one out. Uh, we have one from Dan Kovalik and Rick Sterling, What We Saw and Heard in Crimea. So this is part two of their three-part series about their trip to Russia. This is interesting. They went over to Crimea and they spoke with locals about a lot of things in this situation you know, the events of 2014. So definitely worth a read there. One from Ramsey Baroud, Prophets of Doom, Kissinger and the Intellectual Decline of the West. One from Sareb Amari over at the American Conservative, It's Always Harder to Oppose the Current War. One from Kelly Vlahos at 
responsible statecraft for Memorial Day. Let's get real about the recruitment crisis. Uh, but that's everything for me. I hope everybody had a good Memorial Day if you had the day off. Um, you could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Share the show, comment on YouTube, like, and subscribe. I appreciate it. I've been getting a lot of feedback lately and a lot of comments. Um, and so that's always good. The engagement's good. The show is still, you know, growing uh, more and more, it seems like, every day. So it's all good. I appreciate all the support. But that's it for me. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.